0: I'm Shelby. And I'm Janine. We are the hosts of We We Art Art Here. Here. We talk about art. I introduce the history on an art subject.
1: And I interview an artist tied to that art subject. Keep listening.
0: Documentaries have been around since the early days of filmmaking, with the term itself dating back to at least 1926, with John Grierson's review of Moana, no relation to the 2016 Disney movie. Grierson took the term from the French documentaire, but prior to the coining of documentary, the films were termed actuality films. Fellow film critic Pierre Lorenz defined a documentary as a factual film which is dramatic, lending itself well to presenting messages, opinions, or as another form of journalism. Throughout the history of documentaries, this definition remains relevant. By the 1920s, Romanticism had entered the documentary film scene. Robert Flaherty's Nanak of the North is cited as a start of this movement, with its staged moments depicting a life in the Canadian Arctic that was inaccurate to how life was lived in the then-present day, and more like life well, a hundred years prior. For example, Flaherty had subjects hunt a walrus with a harpoon instead of a shotgun and built a roofless igloo for interior shots. It romanticizes the idea of its subject rather than showing the truth of it, which is the hallmark of the romantic movement. On the other side of romanticism, city symphony films came into fashion around this time as well. Often based around a metropolitan area, this Somewhat avant garde form of film was an extension of the modern art movement, filming the life of the city, featuring people as a product of the environment. One film to represent this is Man with a Movie Camera, which, notably, utilized several filmmaking techniques that were novel at release in 1929 but are commonplace today, such as tracking chops, slow motion, jump cuts, match cuts, and split screens. Arguably one of the most recognizable and lasting variations of documentaries in the 1920s is the birth of the newsreel. Occasionally staged, these short films were, well, exactly what they sound like, news stories exhibited in theaters, either before a film or in dedicated newsreel theaters. These could also be considered a precursor to the contemporary evening news before stations started producing their own newsreel-like footage in the late 40s. However, the newsreels remained a feature in theaters until around the 1970s, when they finally fell out of fashion. Moving on to the 1930s, these years saw another major aspect of the documentary take center stage. Propaganda pieces. It's the 30s, after all. World War I just finished, and World War II is on the horizon. So everyone is producing propaganda. For example, in Nazi Germany, one of the most notable propaganda documentaries is 1935's Triumph of the Will, commissioned by Adolf Hitler. On the American side of things, Frank Capra was commissioned by the US government to produce a series of newsreels titled Why We Fight to encourage the public to go to war. Continuing on into the 1950s, these years saw the birth of cinema verite, or literally, truthful cinema. This sees the birth of more truthful or realistic documentaries, uh, in the observational mode, which I will get to later. Film advancements around this time allowed for producers to shoot on location with smaller crews who said allowed them to shoot on location as events unfolded. This easily leads into the 1960s and 70s when documentary films were being used for more political purposes uh, especially in Latin America. In 1968, La Hora de los Hornos or in English, The Hour of the Furnaces, directed by Octavio Gatino and Arnold Vincent Cudales Sr., influenced a whole generation of filmmakers. Among this burgeoning political movement in documentaries is the early 1970s Chile, A Special Report, which was public television's first expository look at the September 1973 overthrow of the Chile government by military leaders, produced by documentarians Ari Martinez and Jose Garcia. So while we're talking about the different emerging styles of documentaries, let's talk about the different modes of documentary styles. These are essentially sub-genres of documentaries, and I've kind of touched on them. I talked about like the observational mode when I was discussing cinema verite. So let's start with the observational mode. The observational mode is meant to evoke the feeling of being a fly on the wall. Filming is done on location, with little intervention from the director as possible. There's no interviews or arranged scenes, not even any narration. In these kind of films, scenes tend to speak for themselves. Uh, One director who's known for his work in this style is director Frederick Wiseman, which you can see in his works in institutions and social issues in high school and public housing, respectively. Almost opposite the observational modes is the participatory mode, which sees the director engage as they document. Think of this as like man on the street type interviews, uh, dynamic shooting, investigative reporting and run and gun styles. If you want to see a director who uses this mode, take a look at Michael Moore's work such as Bowling for Columbine. Next, let's talk about the expository mode which are probably more of what you're thinking of when you think of your stereotypical documentary. It's scripted narration, talking about a particular subject, interviews with experts or knowledgeable individuals on the subject, and a general unpacking of a thesis or argument. For example, newsreels are expository. Uh, Ken Burns documentaries are expository. Little short videos that you see in museum displays are expository. They're kind of the baseline documentary experience. Next, the poetic mode. The poetic mode is meant to invoke a feeling or a mood. You know, like a poem. The narrative tends to be more abstract and the cinematography is prioritized. The City Symphony films I talked about earlier are very much an example of this as they focus on the rhythm of the city over any particular narrative. Documentaries in the reflexive mode are meant to make audiences ask questions about the authenticity of the documentary as a whole. One subgenre that you might be familiar with is the mockumentary, which is a kind of reflexive documentary. For example, this is Spinal Tap. It pokes fun at rock documentaries of the time, and the tropes of, like, the infighting, the rise and fall of popularity, and that climactic final concert where everyone gets together in the end to put on a show. However, it's entirely fiction. It's made up. Not real. But there's still a, you know, kernel of truth in it. Finally, the performative mode. This one is very similar to the participatory mode, except that the filmmaker is almost as much of a subject as the main subject. Which is a little confusing phrasing-wise, but stick with me here. Basically, the filmmaker sheds light on a larger subject through the lens of their own experience. They themselves become as much of a subject as the actual topic. For example... Marlon Riggs produced Tongues Untied in the 1980s, which focuses on the black and gay American identity at the time. To bring it back to the history of the documentary, let's start talking about the modern day. In today's times, the documentary has continued to stay relevant and popular with hits such as BBC's Earth series, March of the Penguins, An Inconvenient Truth, and Food, Inc., the trend of using documentaries as a venue for social change has also grown into prominence since these social movements can start and thrive off social media hashtags launched or proliferated by documentary esque projects, such as the infamous Coney 2012. Further, less so on the social activism side of things, the rise of reality television can be seen as an extension of the documentary since technically they can be considered factual and dramatic. Although, of course, the actual factuality of reality TV can be questionable at best, if we're being honest, but. Sticking to the topic of TV, the mockumentary format has become a subgenre of comedic sitcoms, with the rise of hits such as The Office in the mid-aughts. Modern technology has also made it easier for amateurs to create documentaries. Lightweight cameras and microphones make it easier to capture footage on the fly and streaming services offer another way for finished films to make their way to the public, which can be used for things as small as YouTubers vlogging about their lives, which could be seen as an extension of the performative documentary, or as a way for up-and-comers and independent filmmakers to showcase their documentaries. Which, to bring it back to our interview with Mark, this was how he was able to distribute his documentary, Hope Was Here.
1: Hi, how are you doing? Hello.
2: I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you so much for um, letting us interview you.
2: Of course, thanks for thanks for inviting me.
1: Well, I'll introduce myself, um, I'm Janine, I was the person who was emailing you, Um uh
0: and oh sorry go ahead shelby. <laughs> oh, i was gonna say uh sorry i'm having a little some technical difficulties over here on my end no um, worries I'm Shelby.
2: hey shelby and janine nice to meet you both and um yeah thanks for thanks again for reaching out to me and um <clears throat> looking forward to having a, a fun conversation
1: Yeah. so how are you doing um are you in new york right now
2: Um, so I live in New Jersey, um, I live near, near Trenton. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, wife and I both mostly are working from home right now. So I'm editing from home almost, almost every day. Um, yeah. How about, how about you guys? What's, what is school like right now?
0: Uh, it's mostly online for, for us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I don't know if I said where we are, but um, we're in Houston, Texas. Right. Um, And school's online. And I also work for a community college. Um, And we just kind of started going back. So I was in the office this week and then next week I'll be at home. Um,
2: Okay.
1: So how do you like working from home, like editing from home? Do you prefer it?
2: Um, I, so there are, there are ups and downs overall. I love it. Um, it just, it allows for so much more flexibility. Um, I would say toward the beginning of my career, and I think for anyone, almost regardless of of profession, there's so many benefits of, of working on site like in an office setting where you're around other people and you get to experience the ins and outs of of a workplace up close. Um, And there's just a lot about communicating that can be much, much easier when you're in person. Um, But, you know, I I obviously don't miss commuting. And, uh, you know, and especially as as a, a new parent, I've been able to basically work like while my baby is, is napping or work on the weekends. And so I can still, um, you know, spend a ton of time with her and basically just like step, once I'm done working, step out of my office, like out of my edit suite and then just like family time starts immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so overall, I love it. I would say that, you know, even though, As an editor, and I think probably a lot of creative professionals uh, would say the same, is that I'm like naturally an introvert. So I, I'm used to doing a lot of, um, like having a lot of alone time and working with headphones on. Um, So even though I'm used to that, it's still hard to be alone all the time. Like I really miss just you know, being able to walk over to somebody's desk or at least like go grab a beer with coworkers once in a while. So it's hard to be completely alone. I would say like in an ideal world, I would like to go into some kind of office setting, like maybe one, one day a week out of five would probably be ideal. But if I had to choose between going into an office to edit five days a week or working from home five days a week, hands down, I'd choose working from home.
0: Are you guys? Are you?
2: Are you guys missing like the classroom experience, though?
0: Uh, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> it's, I do kind of miss socializing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what? So, um, I guess, could you guys tell me a little bit more, like, about the podcast and like and the class and, um, and co- have you interviewed other people already?
0: Uh, So far, we've interviewed uh, two other people. Uh, Right now, the the podcast that we're working on is about artists and art, but not necessarily in, like, the conventional sense. Um, I think Janine might be able to explain a little bit better. Sure.
1: Yeah, no, that was a really uh, good explanation. Um, I also feel like kind of as we're, like, doing the interviews, we're kind of finding like figuring out what exactly it is that we're um going for but Mm -hmm. um yeah basically it's a podcast about um art and just how different people define it um Mm -hmm. so yeah we're not trying to get like a specific definition of it but just kind of see like um what people think about it and how it it relates to some of the work that they do also like Mm -hmm. some of the general types of art that they're interested in. And, Mm -hmm. and maybe they think about something that's, um, maybe they think of something as an art form where like, maybe it's not as uh, generally thought of as that way. So.
2: Mm -hmm. So I worked full time for big Think for about two and a half years. And now I'm a freelancer with them. And while I was full time, my, official title was video editor slash producer. And so I would, you know, do camera setup and sometimes be operating the camera and running audio, usually in tandem with one other person. And so we would basically split duties. So like one person would be the interviewer for half of the interview, and then we would basically switch. Then that person would run camera. So for the first usually for the first half of the interview, I would set up, run camera, and then halfway through I would go into the interviewer's chair, finish the interview, and then that person would be behind the camera for the rest.
1: Did you like kind of like working as a team in that way?
2: Yeah, honestly, that's one of the one of the aspects that I've missed most about being in an office setting is getting to collaborate with other people, especially in a, in a hands-on way. Um, You know, you, there are great digital tools that you can use. And if you're working with people who are strong communicators, typically you can get everything across in email or whatever other, or Slack or whatever channel you're using. Um, But, you know, like in editing, for example, a lot of the work as it is in writing is in is in like going through lots and lots of revisions so you know regardless if it's like an ad you're working on or i would for big think work on a lot of educational content uh, which i can go into if you guys want to hear more about but as with like any kind of content you're making you know you do one draft and then depending on the team you're working with you get feedback you get edits and then you keep going back and back and forth until everyone who's involved is satisfied with the finished product and it meets all the the requirements of whoever whoever it is whoever it's for if it's for it could be for a client or it's for a general audience like if it's a film um and a lot of that kind of collaboration is just Easier and much more engaging to do in person. Like if you can literally just sit next to somebody at an edit station and watch something together and then stop it and point something out and then have an in-person conversation with somebody like that is really, it's just really fun Um, and it's really energizing and you can usually arrive at the finished product that, you're looking for through virtual collaboration, um, but in many respects, it's just more fun to do in person.
1: I know you mentioned um, just. I I don't know. Maybe I should like also state that like um, Shelby and I were in like um, the MFA program, and um, we were both like interested in video editing. So we do like understand at least a little bit about oh. it. Great. Cool. Um, And yeah, so I just wanted to say that. Um, But um, with working and also um, I don't want to talk about myself a lot, but I'll just like say this. Um, But I also work as a videographer for the community college. And but I like I'm the only person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I was going to ask you, I know you mentioned like having to like kind of go back and forth, you know, as you like to like get to the finished product of what the people of whoever Mm -hmm. is the requester, you know, Mm -hmm. what they're like picturing Mm -hmm. as far as like, in like an artistic sense, do you feel like that, does that kind of help you like be more creative and artistic, or do you find that that kind of like, sometimes it like diminishes like your creativity there?
2: Um, so I'd say 100% working with other, people makes the piece of work much, much better. Um, so you totally like know the, the video process. then, And I actually, my very first job at a school was like the same position. So I when I graduated school, I worked as sort of like the lone, uh, the lone person video crew <clears throat> for the school that I graduated from basically making like marketing videos and putting them on YouTube. Um, And uh, there's, there's a certain comfort in that and that you don't have to answer to anybody else, you know, like you, you're the sole decision maker. And I think in a lot of ways it makes it an, an easier job. But one thing that I realized, like the more, uh, the more jobs that I had, and the more projects I worked on, is that in order to make something that is truly, like truly, truly great, you just have to have a team to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when you uh, you know, a film, for example, is can be a team of th- hundreds, thousands of people, um, each one bringing their own like pretty niche expertise into each single every process of making a film or, or a TV series or whatever kind of video content it is. So, yeah, I mean, working <clears throat> working alone is, is nice, like I said, because you don't have to answer to anybody but yourself. But I think in my experience, st- the, the things that are most fun to work on, most engaging to work on, and that have also turned out the best are things that you work on as part of a team.
0: Uh, so just talking about general projects, uh, do you have a, a favorite project that you've worked on?
2: Um, I have a favorite project that I've worked on. I will say that the job, <clears throat> the work that I've been doing for for the past four years or so, which is mostly in editing educational videos, is probably... favorite kind of work that i've done so far so i you know when i left school i i knew for sure that i wanted to be in video production and i know that i really liked to edit um but i wasn't sure if i wanted to keep shooting or just like solely be an editor and so i tried to treat my twenties as a learning lab and just soak up as much experience as I possibly could. And so instead of sort of like making a really hard, narrow commitment after I left school, I just thought, okay, I'm going to, I know that I want to stay like in video or film production, but I want to try to go a little bit broad so that I can sort of narrow down my focus and be a little bit more confident in what I eventually choose to sort of specialize in. And so in the process of doing that, I really came to love working on nonfiction projects, um, which for me are working on on documentaries and on educational videos. And so <clears throat> I ended up when I was in like my earlier mid twenties making a um, an hour long documentary that I shot in Boston and Peru. Um, and that was about short-term volunteer abroad trips. So like alternative spring break and that sort of stuff. And basically whether or not they're effective and sort of like what a host community thinks about those trips. And so I, I I followed an alternative spring break trip down to like a very, very poor part of Lima, Peru, um, and turned that into an hour long film, which eventually like was able to get streaming on hulu and on uh and on amazon prime and so that was like it it was it was fun and also just like probably the most incredible learning experience that i've ever <clears throat> had in my life like learned more in the few years working on that film than I did probably like in all of film school because it was just such a hands on um experience and just like failed at so many things along the way. Um, So that sort of solidified for me that I wanted to continue working in nonfiction. Um, And it also solidified for me that I wanted to really concentrate on editing because I discovered that through the process of making that film, that the part of the the filmmaking process that I really enjoyed most was editing. Um, So, yeah, that hour long film that I made is probably my favorite project that I've worked on to date. That's, that was a documentary called Hope Was Here. Um, and then that sort of led into a lot of the educational work that I do now, which is, it's not documentary, but it's it's similar in, in many ways. And so, so I'm answering your question basically with two answers, a, do, a, a documentary and then educational videos that I make now, which are, there's a lot of overlap. They're quite similar.
1: How did you kind of pick um, the, like, volunteerism? Because I watched, like, the trailer of it, Mm -hmm. like, on your website. How did you kind of pick that topic of, like, people? Did you have a lot of friends going to, like, on, like, alternative spring breaks where they volunteered?
2: Um, I did, and you know, it's a, it, they're like very popular programs on college campuses. And uh, <clears throat> I would always just sort of hear in, in passing of people saying like, oh, I'm not going to back home this spring break or I'm not going to the beach. I'm going to go on this trip to, you know, for Habitat for Humanity or I'm going to go to um, a, a poor part in South, of South, South or Latin America or elsewhere. And I always sort of just... Catalog that as oh that's that's nice like what a nice, nice generous thing they're going to do and never really thought anything else of it beyond that. Uh, but the reason that I made the film was because somebody it, it basically came to me like it basically fell in my lap. I had a friend who uh, knew someone who was going to a small college in the Boston area who basically said this person like has been doing these sorts of trip on their college campus, like all four years they were there, they turned their experiences into a book and he's looking to turn that book into a film. And he knew at that point that I was looking for like a, a big opportunity. And so honestly, for me, it, it didn't even, it sort of didn't even matter what the subject with the, with the subject matter was. I just said, yes, like immediately. And it was only after that I said yes, and sort of committed that I learned more about it. And uh, thankfully I did end up like having genuine interest in the topic because as I learned in making only one documentary, it's just a really long process. It's, I mean, it it goes on for years. And so if, if you don't absolutely love the subject matter, you know, there's a good chance. You're not going to see the project through to completion because you just have to dedicate so much time and so much energy into, into finishing it.
1: Could you talk a little bit um, about like, maybe even specifically on that documentary, um, like how the process is to like kind of get it to that finished project and like how like um, how like you use like creativity and um, creativity to like organize the clips because I can't imagine like working on a full-length documentary because I feel like a lot of times you don't really know what you're getting right. You just kind of get stuff and then you kind of have to tell the story like
0: mm-hmm.
1: after.
2: Yeah, so <clears throat> so it depends a lot on the kind of documentary you're making. And I think that a lot of people have a misconception about documentary that you sort of just you know, run around there's a, there's a sort of like running gun perception of documentary filmmaking. Um, And I think people think that there's not a ton of planning that goes into it, but there's so much planning ahead Mm -hmm. of time that goes into it. And so if you're making like a a talking hedge documentary an interview based documentary, um, there's obviously the process of like setting up interviews and you can choose who you're interviewing. Um, And then if you're including uh, observational footage you know, even though you are there to sort of be like a fly on the wall, um, you still are deciding which, you're choosing which events in a person's life you're going to show up for and film and like what, how long you're there for and that sort of thing. So um, there is a little, there is some degree of calculation that goes into the footage that you ultimately capture because you have to decide where and when to show up to film stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. having said that, you're right in that, you, once once you show up there with a the camera, you don't you don't know what you're going to get, um, and so once you get into the editing phase, um, the process starts first with backing up all the footage to make sure that there's a ton of redundancy so that you don't lose anything that you just spent all this time capturing, um, and then. Uh, as a lot of editors like to say, especially on documentary work, editing is organizing. And so you can only, you can only really start to do the creative work of editing. Once you're in a place like in the editing program where you can easily find any piece of footage that you're looking for. And so once you have all the footage backed up, you have to start cataloging it. And so and I won't go into the details of like, um, of cataloging cataloging footage, cataloging footage, but basically it's just like a, a lot of organizational work, um, <clears throat> and you'll sort of bring it into the editing program and sort of sort of group footage in whichever ways are most helpful for you as an editor. So it could be by the day that you shot it, it could be by um, a lot of editors like to group footage by theme. So for example, in this film, <clears throat> Hope Was here, maybe I have you know 20 different interviews and each of the people I'm interviewing talks a little bit about um, what what they what they personally are trying to get out of the experience. So what is what is the benefit for me, the person trying to go? And so, I can go through the footage, comb through it, and pick out all of those slices of footage where it's every single interviewer, uh, interview subject talking about that topic, and I can group all of that together. And then I can go pick another topic, another thematic topic, and do the same. Because typically in documentary, <clears throat> if you like watch it really closely, those clips get spliced together. So like a document, it'll move from sort of one theme and then transition smoothly into another. And so you kind of want to have all of the similar topics grouped together. Um, And then once you have the footage in a place where everything is easy to access thematically or otherwise, whatever is easiest for the project, what you essentially start doing is you edit mini movies. And then you end up combining those mini movies together into one full feature length film. So it's sort of like you're building little Lego blocks and then connecting the Lego blocks together to make a finished movie. And so you kind of edit it one one scene at a time. Um, Like one, one, two to three minute scene at a time. And then, you know, you work on that scene individually and you move stuff around to see what works best in that particular scene. And then once you have say a handful of scenes cut, you can start trying to order those to see, okay, should this, should this come before, should this scene happen before or after this other scene and so on and so forth. Um, Yeah. And then again, you, you, you'll try to take a, uh, a stab at getting that to like a rough, a rough draft. And then eventually at some point you just get so, so sick of looking at the same footage over and over again, that you have to show it to somebody else and get their opinion. Um, and then you start implementing that feedback and then, yeah. And then that process goes on and on and on until you arrive at something that you're happy with.
1: Shelby, did you have a question? <laughs>
0: I didn't um, want to cut you off. Yeah, no, I was. I'm just sitting you're thinking about that. I just...
1: I know that was like the full like documentary <laughs> class. I don't need to. Um. Yeah, I was right, going to take a documentary. Break that from my registrar. I know. I just learned so much. Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's uh, you know, it's funny. You emailed me and and you said, and you asked, you want to be about this on this podcast about art and what is art and what is an artist. And Mm -hmm. the first thing, first thing that popped in my head was, I have no idea. I don't know what art is. And Mm -hmm. I don't think of myself as an artist because I don't, I don't, I don't know what an artist is really. I don't Mm -hmm. ever think or see myself as an artist. I I think I see myself more as a craftsperson Um and so for me art is about is about doing it's just about for me it's it's about the process of editing and um yeah and 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 the process on a documentary is like at times quite like grueling and like really painful and 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 totally exhausting but um But I, but yeah, I love it.
0: Um, so I guess my next question would be, uh, how did you get into video editing? You talked earlier about knowing that that's kind of the direction you want to go toward, but, um, Mm -hmm. how'd you get into it?
2: Um, I got into making movies and videos at a pretty young age. I was a freshman in high school when I started. So I grew up playing sports and sports was uh, particularly hockey. So hockey was like my entire childhood. And then I had a really bad knee injury when I was 14. It was like, it was just before I entered freshman year of high school. And I was bedridden for like two months. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I like shattered a piece of cartilage on my, on my knee. uh, During five, during a hockey game and wound up having surgery and then was basically just lying in a bed for two months i missed the first two months of, of high school <clears throat> and uh, I, had, I like needed something to do and uh, my dad was a photographer so he had some equipment laying around including a camcorder and a couple of my friends like who were neighbors just as, like, something, like, to do to, like, help me out and keep me entertained, they, like, sort of realized that, like, my parents had a camcorder, their parents had a camcorder. So they started, like, you know, running around and, like, just shooting little movies in in camera on their parents' camcorders. And then they would, like, bring it to me and show me. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, that's, like, something that I could do while I'm here. And so I picked up my, my parents' camcorder and just started, like, basically messing around with it and started making that's how I started making movies with my friends through all of high school and and I just totally fell in love with it one probably because one generally because i liked the process of doing it and I just like like that I could make something tangible and then show it to people and then of course like you know I got encouragement and Friends or like parents be like, oh, that's cool! Like that you did a really good job at that. You should make another one. So you're like, okay, I guess I'll I'll do it again. And so <clears throat> by the time I finished high school, I had made a bunch of movies with my friends, and I was like, I, I really like this. I guess I'm going to go to film school. Um, and it wasn't really until it it, it it took making movies in high school and in college and like the first four or five years of my career to really decide like I'm an editor. That's what I want to focus on. But yeah. So I started, I started just like messing around making movies with my friends in high school and downloading footage from the internet and cutting it on my parents like super old Dell PC using like windows movie maker 2000, which is like just archaic editing um, program at this point. I mean, and this was at a point where at a time where um, downloading footage on the internet was like kind of a time consuming process. You couldn't, like YouTube didn't exist. So I downloaded footage from this, uh, this software called Kazaa where you would just like have to wait like 30 minutes or an hour or two hours for like a little bit of footage to get and edit. And so If I wasn't running around, like making a movie, like a little movie with my friends, I was downloading footage from the internet, usually like, like, um, like hockey highlights that I could just mess around with and and edit together. And so and that's, that's how I got started. And I've been doing that, you know, basically for I started out was doing that when I was 14. I'm 32 now. So I've been I've been doing it for 18 years in one form or another.
1: Did, while you were in film school, did you ever like work with like film film and like edit using like, I don't know, I don't even know what it would be.
2: Yeah. So, um, <laughs> <clears throat> so we never edited the film on the, they're, <clears throat> they're called Steambecks because that was a name of the company that made them, but they're flatbed editors, which is like where you're actually like cutting the actual film strip. Mm-hmm. We never use those, but my so my class in film school was actually the last one to at my school to shoot on celluloid film. Mm-hmm. And so we shot on Bolex's um in like in my film production one class, <clears throat> and then we shot on RE2s in my film in my film production class after that and the re2 cinema camera is like what you typically think of when you think of a movie camera it has like the two big like Mm -hmm. film magazines and so we had to learn like how to properly expose the film and like how to change the film like inside of a changing bag and like load it into the magazine um and then once, and then, and then you, and then you send it off to the lab for processing and it comes back and then you have to digitize it. So we, we shot on film and then edited on Avid on the computer. But I'm, I'm, which, which is funny because actually then when, when, when the classes after me started shooting on DSLRs, I was actually really unfamiliar with DSLRs mm-hmm. <clears throat> for a couple of years. Cause I just hadn't worked with them at all. But, I'm still to this day, very thankful that I had the experience of learning to shoot on film because it just, it forces you to be much more deliberate in your Mm decision-making because, you know, when you're shooting on a phone or if you're shooting digital, you can just shoot endlessly. There's no limit to the amount that you can shoot. I mean, there's a limit, I guess, if you only have a certain number of cards, but you know when you when you have to buy the film yourself and then pay like send it off to a film lab and get it processed, there's a budget. and uh, so you just have to be really careful about what you're shooting and like do a lot of planning ahead of time. And then even when you do then think that you've successfully captured what you want on celluloid film, you can't watch it back immediately to check. You just have to pray that it came out right send it to the lab and then you have to hope that the lab doesn't mess it up when they're processing it. And so you're basically just sitting there for a couple of weeks, like praying that your footage comes back. Okay. When you sit down to digitize it, um, which is a nerve, which is a nerve wracking experience when like, you know, even in, in film school, you're like working on a deadline and you have to get something in for a grade. Um, so it taught me a lot of discipline. Working on shooting on film, but not editing on film.
1: Um, So you mentioned hockey that you're a hockey player, and I saw on or um, on your website like some of the like sports things that you edited on, Mm -hmm. and some of them are hockey, but some of them are also like NBA. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you have like a favorite? I'm guessing it might be hockey, but out of like the sports type of content that you've edited do you have a favorite one to
2: edit um definitely hockey I don't do sports editing anymore um but I did so yeah like I said I grew up playing hockey and I grew up in the New York metro area so I grew up a huge New York Rangers fan and still am to this day and I ended up working at MSG networks for two years which is the uh, New York Regional Sports Network, so it's home of the Rangers and the Knicks as as well as the Islanders and Devils and the uh, Red Bulls, MLS team. Um so that for I mean that was like a like a boyhood dream come true for me. Um and uh, it was it was predominantly hockey and basketball that we were editing. So it was all the New York hockey teams Knicks, Rangers, Devils, plus Knicks. And uh, <clears throat> I preferred to edit the, the hockey content just because I'm, I'm such a big hockey fan and I grew up playing hockey. Uh, but because of, through working there, I, I just learned much more about basketball and then became a Knicks fan. My fandom sort of faded away after I eventually left the network. Um, but yeah, I really, I, I really, really enjoyed cutting the hockey content. I mean, I basically a lot of time just got paid to like watch Rangers games (laughs) and then edit highlights from them. Um, And then eventually I left because basically for lifestyle reasons. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I tried to have the mindset in my twenties to treat those like first seven, eight, years after college as a learning lab Mm -hmm. and so i had i had heard from a lot of people who worked in sports that if you grew up a big sports fan and then work in sports it can kind of kill your fandom or kill your passion for sports and i wanted to try to test that out to see if it were true and uh, eventually through working at the at a at msg part of my editing duties became like writing like captions and just like other really tedious stuff that I didn't want to do. And so I started to associate work that I didn't want to do with sports. And I was like, man, uh, I'm really starting to not enjoy this as much anymore. And, you know, I worked the game shift, so I worked nights and weekends. And so I almost never saw my wife. We were on completely opposite work schedule so she was working like typical nine to five hours and i would go to work from like you know four or five to like midnight or one or two in the morning like whenever the games wrapped up and we finished cutting all the content um so eventually i eventually i left because part of the job became stuff that i just didn't want to didn't want to do and Mm -hmm. that combined with um just not being able to – basically, like, losing my social life. Um, I decided that that was more important to me than working in sports. And so eventually I left. But it was still, like, an incredible experience and, like, two of my favorite professional years of my career so far.
1: Did you ever get to meet any um, hockey players that you really liked?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's <clears> – <throat> so – So part of our job, so that again was like um, my title at that job was editor producer. So it was like 80, 90% editing, but also they usually in those positions look for somebody who also knows how to shoot. And so we oftentimes would during the game go down into the television studio where they were doing the broadcasts and we would hang out with the network talent, like in between Periods, or like at halftime during the next games, and do um, like Facebook streams or um, Periscope, and so we got to meet a lot of the network talent. Um, and so in the New York area, that's like guys like Al, Al Trotwig um, or Steve Alkett, Ron Duguay, who worked on uh, Rangers broadcasts, um, <clears throat> and then one of the summers while I was working there, I ended up shooting some video projects for the Rangers at their uh, one at their youth hockey camp and another at like a golf, um, some sort of like golfing event. And so in that process, I got to meet and interview a bunch of players and a bunch of like Rangers alumni, um, which is just like, uh, like made me giddy. I was like, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't, I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, yeah, like I said, in many ways, a dream come true, a boyhood dream come true for me.
1: Shelby, did you have anything? <laughs> I don't want to, I'm afraid um, I'm going to start talking when you're talking. And oh,
0: no, 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 you're fine. Um, no, I, um, go, go go ahead.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so the way that I, like, found you originally was on, I'm on the Blue Collar Post Collective, mm-hmm. and I just saw your post about, um, the website your website rising editor
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it, it was just a link to the animator animation editing mm-hmm. article um but like i read about it and um so you're like trying to kind of help build a com- community of editors and like kind of helping people like i don't know about getting matched but just Kind of about connecting with video editors so they they can hopefully like find work especially during like right now um so how did you kind of like build that the website and reach out to people
2: so yeah so rising editor is a very new project for me i only started it i've i've been kind of i was sitting on the idea for like for a while for many years but I only started it once COVID hit because I just felt like a, a a duty to do, to, to finally like get it going. Um, so I graduated in 2009 from college, which was like at the bottom of the recession at the time, which is now, you know, not nearly as bad as what, as what COVID produced, but, um, you know, a lot of me and a lot of people that I graduated with just had like a hard time getting our careers off the ground. And I kind of realized through the first, you know, five years or so of my career that it was just really difficult to find mentorship. And in order to find it, you you have to like really, really search aggressively for it and uh, like reach out to people who you think maybe Are in a position, you know, five or six years ahead of you that you might one day like to be in and like try to get, try to contact them and get a hold of them and like try to have a phone conversation or like meet up for coffee with them. And it's just kind of a long, it takes a while to, to, to try to meet enough people like that that you can really soak up a lot of advice that's going to be like useful to you in making decisions about your own career and the way that you strategize about it. I wanted to try to, make something that would fill that void for people who were who wanted to be editors and so basically the idea was just to start writing articles around like career strategy and career coaching for emerging video editors and so so far the my approach has been to either right from my own experience, like here's, and, and basically just, um, you know, catalog it in some useful way, like, and and try to try to do it in a way that gives people like really actionable, like boots on the ground advice. Mm-hmm. Like here's what worked or didn't work for me here, are the steps that I took to found a job. Um, so there's that part of it. And then, you know, I'm just one person with one experience and, uh, So I I then just started reaching out to other editors who had, from what I could tell, experiences that were a little bit different from mine, like working in different parts of editing uh, or in different cities and different kinds of content and then interviewing them to get their perspective and basically just to ask them, one, like, what is your job like? Um, So that somebody who's trying to navigate this kind of work and sort of get a taste of all the possibilities that are out there for a career in, in editing. And then two, what was your journey? How did you do it? Um, because, you know, there, there are a lot of things that I really loved about film school, but I do think it was in a lot of ways, it, it did not prepare me for the working world. And so the idea is to try to is to try to fill that gap and to try to just get some kind of resource out there that is immediately actionable from people who are like stepping out of college and trying to navigate like the first three to five years of their of their careers. Yeah, and so far, and it's it's um it's a learning experience for me. It's, I mean it's great for me because I get to learn about other from other editors about like content that I don't know anything about. So I work almost exclusively in nonfiction. Um, And so getting to learn from other editors about what it's like to work on animation or what it's like to work in the video game industry, which is another interview that I did, or or to work on commercials, which is like experience that I don't really have. Um, And so yeah, and so and it's help, so it's helpful for me personally too, just to get a better idea of what the landscape is like, um, and just to hear about you know hear about other people's experiences and how they're making it how they're making it work.
0: <laughs> I think that's it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, you go ahead. Um, I was gonna say that's like. I know you're trying to talk of me, but like, um, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought.
2: <laughs> no worries.
0: Um, has there been like anyone that you've reached out to that does just like had a particularly unusual um, journey or something that's like really stuck out to you?
2: Um, I don't know. So I've only <clears throat> so so for rising editor, I've only interviewed a handful of people so far, but I've, I've had, you know, I've spent so much time with editors over the past 10 years and I've met so many of them. And so what is right now on that, the interviews right now on that blog are a very small sample size of like the cumulative conversations that I've had with editors over the course of the past decade. Um, and in all those conversations combined, I don't know so much that I've met people who have had experiences that really stick out to me. Um, But one thing that I do notice and try to um, glean some insight from are like, what are the commonalities between editors that I speak with who like have some amount of success However, you want to define that, um, and so though and 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 those things are like a lot of things that I try to tease out in in the interviews that I put on the site. Um, but yeah, I mean one one commonality that I that I find with like almost every single editor that I talk to is as much as it is a creative line of work and you need to master like, <clears throat> you know, your storytelling ability in addition to like knowing your way around an editing program and like and knowing the technical side, um, your ability to build relationships and, and just be like a really easy and pleasant person to work with is so, so important. And I know like, You know, when you're in college and, like, immediately after, like, it's, like, people just, like, try to hammer this idea of networking through your head. And uh, I remember when I was a little bit younger just thinking, I don't know, that, like, networking has this icky connotation to it or something. Like, you just imagine, like, people, like, walking around some event, like, with people you don't know and just, like, having, like, a business card, like, on, like on a holster, like, Hey, here, here's my card. You want, let's talk. Whoa. Um, but what I learned was <clears throat> one that building relationships really is that important. Like it really is that important. And number two is that the sort of quote unquote networking that a lot of people talk about, that's crucial for having success in in this industry or, or another is really uh, the term that I prefer is relationship building, because I honestly think that like going to networking events is a complete waste of time. I've gone to like a couple and never got anything out of it, but building relationships on the level of one-to-one. So like meeting one person for coffee, Or talking to one person on the phone and hearing about their experiences, the kind of work that they do, is just it just it's just so much more effective and you just learn so so much more from it. Um, so that's one commonality that I found from talking to a lot of editors is that you just sort of have to have this like magical combination of being creative and like having good storytelling abilities and knowing the technical side of the craft. Um, and then also like, just like being nice to really nice to people and being easy to work with and being likable because like, I mean, people want to work with people that they like, <laughs> like I, just like sounds so stupidly simple, but like, It is, it is, it is amazing how far you can get just by being nice to people. Like, I really, really mean that. Um, I don't like, I, I'm technically think that I'm not, uh, like, I don't have a lot of technical knowledge as an editor, um, which has been one thing that's hard for, been hard for me to navigate from working from home is that I have to like, have had to learn a lot of that really quickly. Um, but I've I've always taken the approach that the technical side of editing, um, it's just they're just tools, and the, the the tools change, you know, very very frequently. And uh, what matters is the way that you use the tools and what what you produce with the tools. Um, and so I've just concentrated on knowing enough of the technical side, and then like really trying to hone my ability to like to, to tell a story and to communicate something meaningful with whatever it is I'm working on. Um, and then just to, to be an easy and like really delightful person to work with and just to be like a really strong communicator. And, um, and, and so far, (laughs) I don't know, it's, it seemed to work.
0: (laughs) Um, I guess that kind of plays into, um, the next thing I was I was going to ask was, or well, I guess you kind of answered it. Uh, what kind of advice you you had for people aspiring to get into your field?
2: Um. Yeah, so definitely relationship building is huge, 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 um, and like I said earlier, um, I think. For the most part, even from people when they leave college, still don't really know what they want to do. And so, you know, I've said a few times that I treated my 20s as a learning lab. And if you're one of those people who, you know, steps off of the college campus and is still a little bit unsure about your path, that's... That's what I would try is just, <clears throat> you know, no matter how much you learn in a classroom, you really can't learn what you're good at or what you want to do until you do it. You just have to learn by doing. And so the, the, the bigger diversity of experiences you can soak up in the shorter, shortest amount of time, I think the faster that you can arrive at a decision <clears throat> about what you want to really pursue in whatever field it is that you're in. Um, so relationship building, trying to soak up um, a range of experiences, um, and there was something else that was on my mind that now I had slipped. What is it? Oh, <clears throat> so for me, I would say one 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 signal that I have I I knew that editing was what I wanted to keep doing was that I really enjoyed the, the process, like the day-to-day process of doing the work because ultimately like, you know, if you're sitting down to work for seven or eight hours a day, you have to enjoy the ins and outs of what, of, of that process for like 30, 40 or 50 hours a week. And so, I would tell people try to look for something for which you enjoy the process of doing Um, rather than falling in love with the idea of a profession or of a position or a title. Look for something for which you enjoy the process, like the day-to-day process. And I think for a lot, for a lot of people, that means you might not want to become an editor because a lot of people hate editing, hate editing. Uh, Because it's just, it's really, it's, it's like, it's really tedious. Um, And it really is. Editing is, excuse me. Editing I think is, is the art of subtraction. So similar to, similar to like sculpture, right? You start with a block. So this was, I think, a a quote from Michelangelo on his, his statue of David is people asked him, like, how did you create this like magnificent piece of work? He said that I started with a block of marble and I carved away everything that wasn't David. So, you just started chipping away at the things that that shouldn't be there and that's exactly what editing is is you start with a block of footage um that maybe you know there's some guidelines or scripts that you have to work with but largely you're starting off with a block of footage and that that has no meaning it's just um it's just a bunch of you know, hours and hours, sometimes hundreds of hours of footage uh, just sitting in an editing program. And then you have to start making decisions about what doesn't belong here. Um, And eventually you cut away enough that you arrive at something that communicates something meaningful to whoever it's supposed to, whoever the intended audience is for. Um, And Typically, the, the process of, of going through revisions is a process of deciding what doesn't need to be here. <clears throat> That's, yeah. That's a lot of editing. What does it need to be here? Or what do we need to add back in? And in what order should the information that we're presenting, in what order should that be divulged to the audience?
1: I know before you kind of mentioned that at least like you don't really think of editing as like art. Um, So what are some of the things that you like, if you think about it, that you would consider art or do you consider video editing art? It's just not kind of what you first think of.
2: Um, I think when somebody says art, for some reason, I think first of i think of fine arts like i think of painting i think of sculpture um yeah it's hard it's hard for me to say whether or not i consider what i do yeah like i said i don't i don't ever think of what a, what i'm doing as doing art or making art um i guess when people when somebody asks me what is art or what i think of it's always like the cliche the clichés around mm-hmm. art um for 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 better or for worse, but I mean, yeah, I mean, even when you emailed me, I tried to think of like what are what are some of the things that I would consider art. It's like okay, well, a painting is art, a sculpture is art, uh, mm-hmm. a poem is art, um, a film is art, a piece of music is art, <laughs> a piece of literature is art, but you know, who's to say that like a really beautifully and like deliciously prepared meal is not art. Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's art. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what an architect does is could be considered art.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mark. Um, I think this might be like one of our best interviews so far. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. And I feel like I've learned like a lot just from like this short conversation with you.
2: That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I've had a, this is a lot of fun, a lot of fun, fun conversation.
1: How do you pronounce your last name in case we have to say it in the intro? Danega. Danega. Okay. Danega.
2: Yeah.
1: All right. Cool. Thank you.
2: Yeah, of course. And, um, yeah, like I said, if you need anything else, um, or if you need to send like a description to me for editing then uh, just feel free to email me about whatever else you need.
1: Okay cool.
2: Okay, cool. We'll All that. right. Thank you guys Thank so much. You. Thank you. Bye. Have a good
1: weekend. <laughs> you too. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.